Welcome to Iroquois History and Legends, Episode 2, The First American Constitution. On this episode, Andrew and I are going to be talking about the Constitution of the Iroquois and also how their government worked. And I think that the only way that we can you know, truly understand the symbology behind their government is if we take a step back and first talk about how they lived and what their houses were like. Yes, so the name Haudenosaunee literally means they are making a longhouse or people of the longhouse. Okay, now I'm confused because I learned in school that the Native Americans, they lived in teepees. What you is this? wrong. Well, some Plains people did live in little teepees or tents, but we're talking about Eastern Native Americans. And in the Northeast woods, they lived in longhouses. Wood was plentiful, and so their houses were made out of wood. This wasn't like a house like you and I have. This was a pretty big house. We're talking like some of them could be 100 feet long. Some of them were as long as a football field. Yikes. They were huge and very long and narrow. You're like, what does that have to do with their system of government? Well, you've got to think of it. They used their house as a symbol for their whole nation. So they viewed their whole five nations together as a longhouse. And we're going to explain how that meant. So a longhouse, like I said, is really long. It's a barked, thatched building. And then it has two big doors on each end. That was the only way in, only way out. They had bunks going down the side where they could use for sleeping and storage. And then in the middle, they had fires where they could cook and keep warm. And how, Caleb, does that relate to how their nation was set up allegorically? Well, one thing, think about it. How big is a 100-foot or 100-yard long house? That's a huge house to only have two doors. But, you know, the reason for it was actually because it was a security thing. It was a lot easier to defend your home if you only had two entrances. So you'll see in their confederation, for example, the Seneca Nation was the furthest to the west Therefore, they were known as the keepers of the western door. So, symbolically, that would be like you living on the west-facing door of the longhouse, and it was your responsibility to guard that door. Yeah, and make sure no enemies came through there. So, if you continued to move east from the Seneca, you would come to the next nation, which was the Cayuga. The Cayuga were known as a little brother in the Confederacy, and the Seneca was a big brother. And then, continuing to move east we come to the Onondaga, who are known as the Keepers of the Fire. This is the middle nation of the Longhouse. Because remember, the name Haudenosaunee actually means people of the Longhouse. And, you know, I'm basically describing you a rectangle of land. So we've started at the western door, and now we've moved to the center, the Fire Keepers, where just like in the Longhouse, the fire was kept. From there, we would move to the Oneida, who were another little brother, and then to the Mohawk, the keepers of the eastern door. So what I don't get is uh, we have older brothers and younger brothers. Does that mean that uh, you know certain ones had more say in the council, or, or how did they? What did that mean to have older brothers and younger brothers? We're going to talk about consensus building and how everything was unanimous actually in the council. But the main thing was that younger brothers and older brothers. Just like we're viewing the Longhouse as a building and then as a nation, you also want to think of the council as a family. If in the, on the council, somebody, the last time they had met, somebody died, and they were a member of an older brother nation, 
Well, the younger brothers would get together and they'd hold a condolence ceremony and they'd go through the motions of saying, you know, how sorry they are and give the wampum and they'd talk about other things on how to assuage their grief and things like that. And then conversely, the opposite way of somebody on the younger brothers, then the elder brothers would get together and they would, you know, help them when they were going through their mourning process. So it was a symbolic thing that went together as well. Okay, another thing, Andrew. We've been talking about the Seneca, the Cayuga, the Onondaga, the Oneida, and the Mohawk, but where do the Tuscarora come into play in this? Well, at the moment, the Tuscarora are way down in North Carolina. Now, we had mentioned before that, you know, there's Iroquois people as a whole. There are other Iroquois people out here that are not members of the Iroquois League. And so the Tuscarora were one of those people. There were other people like the Cherokee and other smaller tribes up in the St. Lawrence River, and some people even would classify Huron people as an Iroquoian people. So right now the Tuscarora are living their life down in North Carolina, and we're going to talk about many episodes down the line how they actually lost a war and fled as refugees back to their cousins of the Five Nations, and they were adopted to become the Sixth Nation. And what year was it that they became part of the Confederacy? Officially, it was 1722. They had been migrating some time before, but that's when they came. So like I said, we're not going to get to that for a bit. But when we do, don't worry, we're going to cover it fully. Okay, so the council is is a league based on the concept of representation, not necessarily democracy. It wasn't everybody had a say and everybody got a vote and everything, but a lot like what we have in America, and some people even make the argument that this is where America got the idea, was to send people that were of good moral character to represent you and your nation. Now, the men that sit on the councils from each nation are known as sachems. I'd like to point out, a lot of times you may hear them called chiefs, but sachem was a distinction they were, you know, if you want to use the term, they were a chief. And in some literature, you may call them, hear them called the 50 chiefs, chiefs, but they were called sachems in this particular role. Yeah, because you'll hear chiefs for all sorts of different positions. Like in the Revolutionary War, you hear about, you know, a Mohawk war chief. You know, so the sachem really distinguishes, but, you know, it's, it's not just a chief. This means that they are actually, you know. Political office. Yes, political office, almost like a senator, you know, representing your state. It was more than just saying they, they were the chief or they were the war chief. So it's, it's important to understand that. So, Caleb, these sachems, how did they get on these councils? Okay. So in most countries and cultures, we see so often how people get these positions of power is they have a family that, uh, you know, is super rich or has been here a long time or they come from very powerful area or family. But that is completely different than the way they did it. And also, in so many other countries, the strongest men rise up and become, you know, the strongest chiefs and leaders. But they had a brilliant way of doing this. And what they did, each nation had a certain amount of clan mothers in it. And the clan mother would pick a sachem that was honest, reliable, clear-headed, and had a, you know, a great knowledge of the laws and values. And they would be appointed by the head women in their clans. Wait, 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 wait. We're talking about women appointing men to political positions? Yes, it's true. So many people think, okay, the chiefs, you know, there's these, there's these great warriors and, and they, they run everything within the council. But when it comes right down to it, 
the chiefs are actually chosen by the women. They're elected by, by the women and sets represent their nations. Okay, so you said you mentioned some of these values, and I also read that you know they can't be gossipers, they can't be going around committing adultery, they have to be real mentors, they can't have committed any violent crimes. And it was encouraged that for them to be married men with children, that way you could basically remind them that they are to be treating the nation and the people they represent as if they're their children, and you know look at them with the same care that they would their own family. Okay, so they get appointed, and so they probably had an equal representation, right? Like we have two senators from every state, so they had 50 there, so 50 divided by so, 5. They had 10 each, right? Uh, no, actually, uh, and, and it's kind of interesting how they do this, but here's the breakdown for the nations. They actually would have 14 sachems from the Onondaga, 10 from the Cayuga, nine from the Oneida, nine from the Mohawk, and eight from the Seneca. But that just doesn't sound fair, Caleb. Why do the Onondaga get the most? It yeah. just seems like they could just have their way with everybody. Yeah, it's especially interesting because uh, they actually believe that as far as population go, the Seneca actually had the largest population out of any of them. But it says here they only had eight. That's right. So, uh, you know, we think about it in America as our representatives each having, you know, a certain amount of votes. So therefore, if somebody had 10 and somebody had 9, they could basically vote to take property from them. But, you know, they look at this as if they're their own individual nations. So if you think about it, there's really no difference from there being 5 in one and 15 in another because they're only making decisions in their council that you know, affect everybody as a whole. They're not voting like, you know, we might in America to say, okay, we really need some money here in New York. So, you know, we're going to go and lobby that, uh, you know, we raise the taxes in California to, to help us out. You know, it's it's completely madness. So even though there was less sachems in certain tribes or in certain nations, they all basically had the same amount of say in the council. I was just going over some numbers here and something just doesn't fit. I've got a list for clan mothers here since the clan mothers appoint the sachems. I have nine clan mothers for the Mohawk, nine for the Oneida, 13 for the Onondaga, 10 for the Cayuga, and eight for the Seneca. 49, that, right? Yeah, that totals 49 clan mothers, but yet we have 50 sachems. Oh, yeah. Um, the reason behind that is, Caleb, is that Tadadaho was not appointed by any one particular clan mother. He was appointed by all the different... You mean the Tadadaho from the Peacemaker story? Or... Yeah. Oh, we should probably mention how titles worked and names carried down, shouldn't we? Yeah, I think that'd be a good idea because I'm kind of lost right now. Okay. So do you remember learning about Roman history, Caleb? Yeah. Okay. Do you know what they called their emperors? Yeah, some were, you know, like Caesar, for example, that was just his title, or or Augustus became a title. Yeah, because that was a name of the original founder of the empire, right? Yeah. So they had it kind of the same way. The original names of the 50 people that started the council, when somebody would pass on, they would appoint a new person, and they would actually take their name like a title. So to put it in perspective today, we would say that, you know, the president of the United States, we would just call him Washington because hmm. it would be the title because he would be the first one. So what you're saying is the chief Tadadaho, that, that name still sits on the council to this day. To this day, the leader of the Council of 50, his you know official title name is Tadadaho. I
So you mentioned that the 49 clan mothers appoint those 49 sachems, Caleb, but how did you get the position of Tadadaho? Okay, it says here on the Haudenosaunee website that uh, the Onondaga chiefs would come up with a candidate for Tadadaho, and then they would put it up for consideration to the clan mothers. So it was basically a decision between the whole nation of the Onondaga's leaders, you know, between those sachems and chiefs and the clan mothers to come up with that highest position. Okay, so we have the, the 50 sachems here now, and it, this is a life appointment, and this seems really dangerous. What happens if somebody, like a tyrant, gets one of these lifetime appointments as a leader for their nation? Yeah, they, they thought of that because they knew what people were like. And so just like the clan mothers could appoint you, they could impeach you and have you removed, and more so. So if the clan mothers got together and they said, this person's a bad egg, they would ask the war chief, you know, again, we have separation of powers here. The war chief was a person in charge of military affairs. And then you have the sachem, which is, uh, you know, a council of the 50th political position. And so the clan mothers would get together and they'd say to the war chief, we're all going to get together and you need to remove this guy from office. So basically the, the, the clan mother would show up. If she thought he wasn't doing a good job, she would show up and give him a warning. Mm-hmm. And then what would happen from there if he decided to not listen to his nation or his clan mother? Well, the great thing is, you know, we talk about, you know, the Iroquois Constitution, and there's many different articles that they have, and this is in there, and so I'm going to actually quote it. Quote, When a lord is to be disposed, his war chief shall address him as follows. So you, Caleb, disregard and set not the warning of your women relatives, so fling you the warnings over your shoulder to cast them behind you. Behold the brightness of the sun, and in the brightness of the sun's light I dispose you of your title and remove the sacred emblem from your lordship title. I remove from your brow the deer antlers, which was the emblem of your position and token of your nobility. Now I dispose you and return the antlers to the women whose heritage they are. Uh, then it gets a little worse. As I now have disposed and discharged you so that you are now no longer a lord, you now shall go your way alone. The rest of the people of the Confederacy will not go with you, for we know not the kind of mind you possess. As the Creator has nothing to do with wrong, so he will not come to rescue you from the precipice of destruction which you have cast yourself. You shall never be restored to the position which you have occupied. Unquote. That's pretty uh, pretty heavy stuff right there, Andrew. So not only would you get you know impeached, but you basically get tongue lashed in front of the entire council and excommunicated and banished. <laughs> so do you think that the women were able to keep some of these leaders in line? Yeah, it's it's really making me start to think that you know the. The men, it's not like they were running everything. You know, they truly were representatives, and they really did have to, you know, properly represent and, you know, do be, live a moral life or there would be serious consequences. Yes. Okay, so we just talked a little bit about uh, how you get appointed a sachem, you know, the clan mothers, you know, what the council is. But, okay, so now we're actually at the council, and what is actually going to take place here? Well, first thing you need to do is you need to have a fire. And the people that light the fire is Tadadaho and the Onondaga Nation. They need to call the people together at this meeting 
and they need to get it going. They need to get the wood in, and they can use any wood but chestnut. Yep. And well, wait a minute. Uh, why any wood but chestnut? Oh, chestnut, uh, apparently, when you put it in the fire, it liked to crackle and pop and shoot out embers, and that can be really distracting when you're trying to have a meeting, when, you know, hot pieces of fire are falling into your <laughs> Could lap. even be dangerous, probably, especially if your houses and everything are made out of wood. Yeah. Uh, keep in mind, uh, everybody, that the chestnuts they're talking about here are what were called the Eastern American chestnut, which... Uh, you can't even really find them anymore. Yeah, there was a there was a blight that came through, and they believed that it wiped them all out. But now, you know, a hundred years later after the blight, I th- oh, I think that was how long it was. But yeah. you know, I think that the last of them mostly were gone by like the 1950s. But a cool thing, side note, that the American chestnuts are actually starting to pop back up. So if you go online, you might even be able to find a few of them. But but yeah, they would actually uh, a pop in the fire and, and shoot out sparks. So they actually had it written to not use. Yeah. In American- the Constitution specifically, do not use chestnut wood. And uh, also, like Andrew said, uh, Tadadaho and the Onondaga were the keepers of the fire. Remember, we're picturing a longhouse here with the, the fireplace in the center. And Tadadaho was the only one that that could usher everyone into the council. And the Onondaga and Tadadaho would keep the fire. Yeah, and think of it like a modern meeting. You've got a presider of a meeting that's calling everything to order. Mm-hmm. And if I go into some random city council meeting and I try and call things to order, they're going to look at me weird. It's a specific person's job to do that. Yeah, so he wasn't necessarily like the king or the president as we think of him. Think of him as like the vice president who is the president of... The Senate. the Senate, and you know he's he's you know the highest among equals type of thing. Even that doesn't equate well because this is a truly unique form of government. But we're trying to put it into layman's terms. So we're opening the council, and they get right down to business, right? Uh, I don't know. What do they do to start? They uh, well, they got down the, to business, but it's not business that we in Western minds like to think <laughs> of. They they got took care of the important things first, and the most important thing was dealing with grief of people that had passed on. It may have been about a year, right, since they had met, and sometimes people die. So you're saying they didn't just come in and start talking about political issues with uh, treaties and, you know, uh, and and land and things like that. They would actually start with... Yeah, what's called a condolence ceremony. So if, say, there could be several members, but let's just say one person from the Seneca nation died, and he was a sachem, well then... You know, earlier we talked about younger brothers, people from the little brothers, the Cayuga and the Oneida, they would go through a ceremony where they would comfort them from the grief they were having. They would use the wampum. They would say these three lines back to each other, telling them how they were sorry that they had passed on and comfort them and things like that. And it's not like this was some, you know, formal thing that took place over 10 minutes and then we get down to business. We're talking about this could be a whole day, sometimes two days, depending on how many people and how back and forth. So if these took some days, you know, how long would these councils sometimes take? Days, weeks, maybe sometimes even. Wow. You know, do you remember watching Lord of the Rings, Caleb? Yeah, I read the books and and I saw all the movies. So you remember when the hobbits are trying to get the Ents? Those are the tree, Uh the tree-like people. Tree beard, Fangorn Forest, yeah. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. They're trying to get them together. And the hobbits are, like, pulling their hair out (laughs) because they want to, you know, just 
are you going to come join us in war or no? Yes or no, let's get going. And the trees spend all day just greeting each other and saying good morning, and it's night already. Now, the hobbits, in their mindset, they think that that's folly, but the trees, you know, the ants, they think, oh, that's crazy. We need to be polite and talk to each other and get things done. Mm-hmm. And same thing there. These were important things to them. This was not some yeah. trivial thing that you could just rush. Don't be hasty. Don't be hasty. Exactly right. Okay, so Andrew, we have these 50 sachems. Now, is this like a closed-door thing where they go into this longhouse with this fire and the 50 of them are, are making these decisions? Or, or you know, because only the 50 could speak, right? Was anybody else allowed to be there, or how did that work? Well, you know, the 50 were on the seat, and, you know, they discussed and made the decision, but this was a whole, you know, international event. People from all the villages, all the clans, all the communities, from all the nations were sending other people as, you know, tag-alongs because they were interested in what was going on and they wanted to hear the discussion as well. So when these councils and these these morning rituals and things like that were all going on, everybody would be around watching this. Yes, there could be hundreds or thousands of people there. Now, can you imagine that if, if you're... Uh, elected representative, if, if he agreed to to represent you, if you and all of your friends and family actually went there and were watching him, you know, and you know he looks back at you and the rest of your family, and he knows that he has to speak for you, and there's no you know backroom dealings like how we have in America in our politics, you know that that's a pretty neat thing I think to picture. You know, uh, all the different, you know, war chiefs, even though they're not, you know, sachems around them and all the clan mothers, you know, many of them would be there around. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion and things going on. So the Council of the 50 is the deal and they talk. And um, let's let's discuss more about how the inner workings of the council went about. Okay, so we just talked about how, okay, the the, the, the fire has been lit and the sachems are there. There's people all around you know, so they we just talked about the mourning, you know, where they, they the younger brothers mourn for the older brothers and likewise. Yep, so people could bring up discussion on issues that they thought were important. But here was the thing. They, they would bring up what they were going to talk about, but they wouldn't talk about it that day. They believed really firmly in sleeping on it. That was what they said. They said, we'll bring up and people can mull this over and we're going to go you know, back to our, because remember, all these people are traveling with them, so they're going to confer with the members of their family, with their clan mothers, and get their opinion and input, because the Seneca Nation may bring something forward, but, you know, the Oneida Nation may know nothing about this, so they need to confer back on what they think about this. So, you know, we talk about the 50, but they're really all talking about Yeah, so there were multiple opportunities throughout this multi-day, you know, meeting where they break away, they're there in the meetings, but they're making no rash decisions. They go back to basically their nation and you know their clan mothers, and they talk about all these things. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it's 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 not like you're just okay. You're speaking for all of us, and you're going to make our decisions. You know, he's their these sachems are their mouthpieces, but they still are getting input from the clan mothers and and the other leaders in the nation. Yeah, another thing that's written in the constitution is whenever they made a decision. They needed to think ahead seven generations on how this was going to affect the future, which is like if you do 20 years a generation, that's 150 years. Our, our politicians don't think ahead two years. Yeah, <laughs> they just keep kicking the can down the road. Exactly. And so they actually had to think about the next generation and the decisions they were making. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just what benefits us now. So we mentioned how it was all structured, and there was etiquette, 
So was it just a free-for-all, hey, I'd like to take a turn speaking? In Europe at the time, the House of Lords and, and you know their, their groups of elected representatives would all argue over one another. And this is something that a lot of historians think that America might have taken from them and how they did their councils. Because when one person is speaking, everyone else keeps their mouth shut. Yeah, and they actually held a, a wampum band, a, a little group, str few strings of wampum, and they would pass it over it. Whoever was speaking was holding the wampum. And you had to be quiet and listen. And people, they, they took notes. Someone's job was to sit there and they'd have sticks and mark, you know, different things on the key points of what the person's argument was. And when they were done speaking, you needed to stop. You couldn't just rush in. I think that the representative from the Seneca is, you know, out of line. You had to sit there, let it sink in for a minute, and then come up with a logical and, you know, nice way of wording it. You didn't want to sound like a fool. They were actually well known for being orators, you know, like ancient Greeks or Romans were. It makes me wonder what would happen if if some of us tried to live our lives like this. For example, you know, I hear, you know, political things that I, I instantly, they make me cringe and make me, you know, disagree with them. But, you know, maybe somebody could change my mind if every now and again I, I didn't just get defensive and have to argue why I'm right and actually think about why they're saying what they're saying and you know then go back to you know my peers and think about it and talk to them now when they were giving the discussion for the council they would make sure that everybody got their turn first the seneca and the mohawk would discuss amongst themselves and try and figure things out and they would go back and forth and then when they came to a consensus again we're talking about a consensus they really wanted things to be unanimous when they made a decision so they would keep discussing it till they decided one way or another how they thought generally people wouldn't stand in the way if one person thought it was a not a good idea but the other seven did you know the person would give way and say okay I'm gonna go along out of the interest of unity I'm gonna go along with you guys and so it would be a, a consensus building and when the Kyuga and the Oneida had made a decision, they would pass it on to the Anadaga, who would discuss amongst themselves, and then they would come to a consensus on how they were going to go about this particular issue. Now, Caleb, if I wanted to show up, and I'm not a member of the 50, but say I'm an American representative or a Dutch representative, can I go up and address everybody and speak what I want to say? No, you can't. What? And they, this, they ran into this problem a lot of times when American diplomats and people like that would show up. They would expect to be able to get up there and speak in front of everybody and, you know, tell, tell them what they should do and try and influence them. But they had some very strict rules. You actually were not allowed to speak unless they invited you invited you to come and speak about a specific subject. Other than that, you had to keep your mouth shut, and only the 50 sachems could speak at this council. Yep, and same deal. Like we said, they were passing around the wampum, you know, holding the stick, saying whose turn it was to speak. It was very structured and very polite. Mm -hmm. And people, you see it in all the writings, they're amazed at how well they speak, how respectful they are to each other. They're, they're amazed because in their culture, they just thought that everyone could speak their mind whenever they wanted. Okay, I'd also like to point out that at this council, you know, the Seneca and the Cayuga would not be making decisions on what another nation will be doing. They are all here to make decisions as a whole group. The nations themselves are sovereign nations in this confederacy. 
So if they wanted to make any decisions that are just about their own nation, they would go back to their nation and have their own council fire with their leaders of just the nation for those decisions. Yep. It's a very good point. So this is not like a federal government. This is a loose confederation. They're still bound together, but they're not imposing their will majority rule on other people. Mm -hmm. It's a very good point. Now, Caleb, let's talk about pine tree chiefs because we talked about the members of the 50, but this is kind of like an oddity. Yeah, I was reading on the Haudenosaunee website and it actually said that there's currently no pine tree chief, but there is this special position. And from what I understand, this is an honorary position that they could actually add an additional member of to the 50 so you could potentially have 51 or you know I'm not sure how many but I don't know if there's ever been more than one pine tree chief but if there was somebody that was not from the original five or six depending on the time we're talking about that did something great for the nation and wanted to contribute to the nation they could create what was called a pine tree chief. Yeah, because the symbology was, you know, we talked about the pine tree before, how it's the symbolic center of the Onondaga, you know, the great tree of peace, things like that. So they were talking about somebody that sprouted up from amongst themselves. This person has distinguished themselves, and we think that they deserve this honorary position. Yeah. But it was a little different, wasn't it, Caleb, than yeah. an actual sachem position. Yeah, and like he said, the symbology is springing up amongst them but this if if it was a mohawk that distinguished himself he most likely would be automatically by the clan mother appointed as a sachem but this could be somebody that wasn't even originally from the five nations this could be somebody from a different tribe that had been adopted that had been adopted at the same time it could be somebody because let's say you've been appointed to be sachem from our little clan family but maybe i have done something that's great and distinguished well the position is filled you've got it but they say, well, Andrew's pretty good too, so we can raise him up as a pine tree chief, even though he has no claim to it. Now, I was trying to find an example of, you know, a pine tree chief in the past and what he had done to distinguish himself as one. Do you, I, I couldn't really find much. But Well, there was an Oneida chief I know that lived during the Revolutionary War times, and he, his name was Shenandoah. He was actually a Susquehannock who was adopted by the Oneida, and he was raised to the elevation of a pine tree chief. There were some others too, but as we get into the narrative, when they pop up, to use a bad pun, we're going to talk about them. Now, the interesting thing about pine tree chiefs, Caleb, is could you get rid of them the same way that the clan matrons could, you know, somebody else on the council? Yeah, you're right. This this is another thing that we read off the Haudenosaunee website. Uh, this was a lifetime... Uh, position that you could not be impeached from. That just sounds absolutely counterintuitive to everything else they've been doing. So what if he they appointed him and it turned out he was a fool? Well, that's a good point. But well, let's see what, what it says you do with him, since you can't impeach him. Yep. So I'm actually going to quote what it said. Should any man of the nation assist with a special ability or show great interest in affairs of the nation, if he proves himself wise and honest and worthy of confidence, the Confederate lords may elect him to a seat and may sit in the Confederate council. He should be proclaimed a pine tree, sprung up for the nation. He shall be installed at the next assembly for the installation of lords. Should he ever do anything contrary to the rules of the great peace, he may not be deposed. No one shall cut him down. But everyone should be deaf to his voice and his advice. If he chooses to resign his seat, then no one shall prevent him. 
A pine tree chief may not name a successor. No one shall take his place. So the pine tree chief, it's a lifelong appointment that you cannot be impeached from. But basically it says if he for some reason ever starts to get away from the great law of peace and, you know, away from what they believe in, you basically, he's he's there for life, but don't listen to him. Yeah. And it's funny they put that in there. He can resign. So in other words, you could make life difficult for him. And if he wants to resign, don't prevent him. So it's, it's kind of a little backdoor way of getting rid of him. But, you know, they're using him as the symbol of the pine tree. And so they're saying, don't cut it down. You wouldn't cut down the great tree of peace, you know, the great pine. Don't cut it down. Don't cut him down. You decided to appoint him. You stick by your decision. I also think it's really cool, the hindsight here, that they mention that he cannot have a, a heretical heir. Yeah, this is, you know, we'll get into before how you got passed on and things like this. And it wasn't father to son like we in Western culture think. Um, their their succession to chiefs was a little bit different. But, yeah, we created this new position, but once he's gone, it, it's back to the 50. You're, you're not adding another seat mm-hmm. here where he can be replaced by somebody else. Yep. They're given no opportunity for, for anything like that to take hold. So, Caleb, uh, let's talk about the faith keepers. What was this kind of position? Okay, the faith keepers, uh, they worked underneath the clan mother, and there were two faith keeper positions for each clan mother. And here's kind of a cool thing. They would appoint a male and a female faith keeper for each clan mother. And they were in charge of the kind of the spiritual well-being of the clan. It was also their responsibility to make sure people were learning the language of their people and promote the traditions of the people. They, they almost worked as like mentors or spiritual leaders like pastors amongst the people to keep them together and keep them set on the great law of peace. The faith keepers were also very well versed in the history of their people, so they could continue to tell the stories and traditions on to generation after generation. So Caleb, when did this all kind of collapse and fizzle out and they stop meeting? Well, there was a time in the 1700s where for a short time during the Revolutionary War, the fire was extinguished. But what a lot of people don't realize is that the Six Nations of the Iroquois continue to meet in Syracuse, New York, to this day. They still do all these things that are written out in their constitution, condolence ceremony, speaking and being polite, and deciding on things that were good for the Six Nations together. That's right. And they've been doing this since before the United States, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the United States even came together. And that's why we call this the First American Constitution.